This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're airing a best-of-show featuring movies with Hawaii ties and recent interviews with their filmmakers. We start with the documentary film Waterman, the number one grossing documentary in its opening weekend. It's about the life of Duke Kahanamoku, and it debuted at the Hawaii Film Festival last year. This month it began screening at consolidated theaters around the state, where it continues to play for audiences. Billy Pratt, one of the co-producers, spoke with us about how humbling the experience is of being part of a larger, powerful story. I have to say it was quite rewarding and probably one of the greatest treasures that I'll have. I you know, had a discussion with my father a, a, a while back, maybe over the holiday, the previous, not this past Christmas, but the year before. And you know, I never fancied myself. I, I never thought I'd put on my resume that I actually was involved in the making of a film. It's very interesting, excellent process. I was approached a few years ago, just prior to COVID, by a couple of producers and the director of the film, the director who really, the, the creation and the, the creativity and the brainchild of the whole finished product is really Isaac Holosimus. And I was contacted as a waterman. They found me finishing a one-man outrear canoe race, and they were led to me by a few different friends who had said, you really should reach out to Billy Pratt. He has the, the context. He's not only a waterman in these different disciplines, but I've probably the long-tenured person on the Duke Kanemoku Foundation Board. And I think that's an important distinction because what we do as a mission is we raise funds to provide scholarships uh, and grants to Keiki of Hawaii who continue to perpetuate Duke's legacy. So I've been an understudy of Duke for a long time. Uh, My grandfather, long before I was even born, um, was kind of asked by Duke to be involved or in charge of the Duke swim team, similar to the way Fred Hemmings and Joey Cabell and Paul Strau um, are part of Duke's surf team. And so that was a great opportunity to meet them, understand the product they were trying to create, and then through my own analysis, try to determine what what the kuleana would be as, let's say, an alakai or a, a protector for Hawaii to make sure that we're passing on the information about Duke that should be known, also considering what the family thought. So I wanted to make sure that we spoke to Kahanamoku descendants and we captured their thoughts and feelings about their great Uncle Duke. And, uh, and then make sure what was real important to me is we're talking about a character who's 131 years old. Duke was born in 1890, August 24th. So 131 years old, four statues in three countries. Obviously, this is somebody who is a force to be reckoned with and somebody who is recognized around the world. So I want to make sure that we continued as a kuleana to transcend this, this, this story by telling it to the next generation. So it was important to me that we not only would be involved with interviewing individuals who knew Duke, but those individuals who are younger than us who should know about Duke and what the significance of the statues in Waikiki, California, as well as Australia and New Zealand stand for. So I think there's a lot there um, to unravel and really to work on. But those were the things that sort of ran through my mind and to meet such an amazing group of people and the creativity and the hard work they put in. But also, I think that the care that they show for Hawaii and wanting to make sure that they did the right thing and they understood the ideology and the concept of aloha, it it was just gratifying to be a part of. 
there's something to be said about saving those stories, you know, the, uh, the authentic stories. And, and, you know, you want to, to make sure that what endures uh, rings true. And, you know, I, I'm not a surfer. I maybe, you know, tried windsurfing, but, you know, I'm a swimmer and I swim mm-hmm. down there by the natatorium. And, I, and, and uh-huh. so I always think about the history and how he swam there. And, you know, I, I just read with amusement how, you know, he grew up swimming in the ocean, right? And then when he went and swam in a pool on the mainland for the first yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah. Can you imagine for me, often what I do at a lot of the film screenings is I try to offer a few comments from from the production side so that we can help people put things into context. Particularly, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share the stories of Duke with the schools, you know, with high school kids, because I think that contextually it's a much different thought process. If you look at Duke's lifespan, 1890 to 1968, he lived through the overthrow of the monarchy, World War I, World War II, oppression, inequality, rights between men and women, and constant racism, racism, racism. He also had to uh, traverse the country when he did go to Pittsburgh to swim by ship. It took weeks to get there. There were no cell phones. There were no computers. And once he landed on the coast, he would catch a train. So those are variables for all of us to think about. And once you offer that, people put things in context and think, Gosh, besides being an incredible athlete, this man was a warrior. He was incredible to go so far and to be able to accomplish so much. And to think that the the difference between swimming in salt water to fresh water, as you mentioned, and to be in a room, freezing cold temperatures outside, and you're going to be locked inside in a freshwater pool with numerous gentlemen smoking cigarettes the whole time. I mean, they're a lot of these pitfalls and things he had to navigate. And I think early in his career, when he cramped up and failed, I thought that also set up um, a great opportunity, not just for Duke, but also for students here to learn about uh, adversity, because the greatest accomplishments come following adversity. He failed, and he figured a way out. He stayed on the mainland. A coach saw the potential in him, and offered to coach him for free. And once he took lessons, and as Duke was quoted saying, I never stopped training. Once he did that, he became virtually unstoppable. So I think it's uh, it's very impressive. You bring up a good point, not just to think about the incredible feats and accomplishments that he had, but to, to put it in light of the period that he did it and the fact that there wasn't the technology or the ease of you know commuting and transporting yourself as we have today. And people know him as, you know, the father of surfing, you know, the ambassador, Mr. Aloha, you know, but I, I love the story where he was able to save uh, lives by paddling out uh, on a board. And the fact that now when I swim and I see the lifeguards put out their boards in front of the stand when they start their work day, you know, I think of that. It's like, wow. You know, they can get uh, out there in the water faster with those boards. It's become such a tool for ocean safety. Yeah, you bring a, a great point and one that that portion of the film uh, is one of the areas that people always come and brings them literally to tears because they did not know that about them. 
I had a wonderful opportunity prior to the Olympics to share this with a friend in Carissa Moore. And I really felt in my now that it would be important to to share the film with her because I thought it would be inspirational to her. And I recall what we like to do following a screening is to ask the audience what they thought. And she, like all of us, was in tears. And she said, you know, I thought I knew every every single thing about Duke. I know I've studied a lot about him, Ambassador of Aloha, surfing, swimming gold medals, world records. But a lot of people didn't recall the 1925 rescue of the, the Thelma and the individuals who were lost. There were 17 people aboard the ship. This was off the coast of Newport near near what's known as the Wedge body surfing spot. And Duke himself was just in California at the time. You know, he was dabbling a little in Hollywood as an actor as he was uh, aging as an athlete. And he was just passing by. And nobody was doing anything because the water was so violent. But I believe as a waterman and somebody who has a great comfort in the water, he took it as his kuleana. He took it as his responsibility to be the one to do something. And he saved eight people. Five others perished and four made it to shore on their own. What's amazing is a lot of people saw him as, as a hero. And if you, you watch the film closely, you'll see his expression on his face that I think he was embarrassed and felt as if he failed. But to your greater point now, as we look at that as a historical monumental point, you know, they've advanced lifeguarding to have rescue boards along the coast. And really, I think the the courageousness of someone to take it upon their back to, to enter such a risky situation and bring so many people back to life. To touch on the context point that we just discussed previously, you know, you'll see this in the film. He was recognized for those achievements. It took them 32 years to contact Duke. There was no cell phone, and he was the type of person who didn't let anyone know who he saved. But we're most certain that every person he saved never forgot him or what he did for them. So they finally found him and really brought him to, to life in a national TV program to recognize him for those achievements of rescue. And uh, it, it just adds more light and really more dimension to an incredible life of one human being. We have been hearing from Kauai's Billy Pratt, one of the co-producers of the film Waterman, about the legacy of Hawaii's Duke Kahanumoku. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to the Friends of the Hakala Forest National Wildlife Refuge. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org.
The documentary Waterman is gracing consolidated theaters, movie screens in the islands. We were talking to one of the co-producers of the film. Billy Pratt is a Kauai Waterman and a member of the Duke Kahanamoku Foundation. We continue our conversation about how all the stars lined up for the release of this film. The timing of this film, you know, knowing the origins and then watching Carissa Moore, you know, bring home the gold. That was just so amazing. And I, I, I happened to be down there at Kiwalo's. She was down there, I think, with her dad and they were doing, you know, a whole yeah. thing with the surf with the Aloha sign down there uh, yeah. at her spot. It's full circle. And everybody that worked on this film, I think, you know, must be just riding, riding the wave now. It, it's so remarkable. It, it sure is. Uh, that's a wonderful thought. I, uh, with Carissa, I, I can't say enough great things about her. She really is the embodiment of the a reincarnate of an ambassador of law. She truly lives that life, and that's really what she found watching this film. She knows what she is as the world's best surfer, and she knows what her mission is there. But she said truly this film helped her to organize in her own thoughts, the fact that she is an ambassador of the law and wherever surfing takes her, she needs to be sure to share our culture with the world. And she carries that every day and you can hear it in her voice. Um, I, I, I just can't speak enough about her and Kai Lenny is another. This young generation live and practice this. Uh, the, the individual who um, is a very good friend of mine, I'm actually the vice chair for his board, Dwayne DeSoto, plays the reenactment work of Duke. He is the Duke in the movie, and he has a nonprofit foundation called Nakamakai, Children of the Sea, that does incredible things to teach kids about the availability, the power, the potential that the ocean has for the keiki, and teach them how to use it and navigate it, uh, and also to protect it. Uh, we do this for free, and th- there's just all of these ambassadors of Aloha who think this way and give this way and then to think that you have a human gladiator like Laird Hamilton Kelly Slater the greatest surfer in the world and these people are coming on a film you know for no no fee just to talk about Duke because they feel completely galvanized the reason they do what they do is because of Duke and when you add to his list that the same kick that Michael Phelps uses in swim races. Yes. Or the fact that, you know, Fernando Aguirre was able to finally get surfing into Olympics. That was really a thought or a prognostication by Duke a hundred years ago, that surfing is a pretty cool sport. It probably should be in the Olympics. And here we are still celebrating this man. So for us, you, you mentioned a key word. So many people who have viewed this film, screened it, or watched it, all of our film festivals have said, gosh, your timing is incredible because of the Olympics, uh, because of conflict in the world, and the fact that perhaps if this film, which is really, I'd say a kuleana of Sidewinder films, they, they do a magical job of not only making great product, but they want their product to cause social change. They want this story to resonate for longer than the period that it's in the film house, you know, in a theater house. They want people to understand that this culture of aloha is a way of life, it's a way to live, and you don't necessarily have to be Hawaiian to exercise aloha. And we're hopeful that that's the message that carries through. It's wrapped, obviously, in the greatest athlete of his time and the ambassador of aloha, but it's really more about a story of compassion, humility, and how we all as human beings should, should live. 
And if there wasn't enough going for this film, the producers were able to snag none other than Jason Momoa of Aquaman in Baywatch fame to narrate the documentary. After the film began playing consolidated theaters at the beginning of this month, it began screening in Utah and California and will eventually be in theaters across the Pacific to Australia and New Zealand. And so we leave you with the trailer of Waterman to whet your appetite. At 14, Duke Onomoku embraced his responsibility to master the ultimate Hawaiian tradition, becoming a waterman. A waterman is someone who can do everything in the water. As a kid in Hawaii, you wanted to be a waterman, and the Duke was the big kahuna. To us, he's the king of surfing. No American athlete has influenced two sports as profoundly as Duke Hanamoku. He was on the world stage, even though the world wasn't ready for it. All of a sudden, it's like he's a superstar. Jim Thorpe, Jesse Owens, Jack Johnson, and lost in that shuffle is Duke's role as a racial pioneer. He did encounter overt races. He was able to break a lot of color lines. The amount of pride that he was able to give to his people. He was one of the biggest celebrities in the world. Aloha. He had come from nowhere to the Olympic team in three months, which is an unrivaled story in Olympic history. He changed the world with a Kahanamoku kick, the same kick that Michael Phelps learned. A superhuman feat. He's bringing a sport that nobody has seen before to their shores. I think that Duke shared surfing with the world because it was the greatest gift that he had received in his life, and he wanted other people to experience it. He rescued so many people. Life-saving wasn't a profession back then. There are true heroes in the world, and he was one of them. Duke accomplished the seemingly impossible. The story of one of America's greatest icons. When the world saw Duke, they saw Hawaii. Years ago, North Shore firefighter by day and filmmaker by night, Jeff Wallace had only a name, Angel by Thursday. Now that's the title of his first feature film. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Wallace about how that first spark of inspiration led him down a decade-long path. Angel by Thursday is a drama, and it spans a generation, you'll see. But it's basically about two families that are drawn together by tragedy. And I won't spoil what the tragedy is, but it's a way for them to, to reconcile, find peace, and I think find love. So it's a full circle story that I think a lot of people can relate to because life can be messy. In your personal life, are you someone whose life has been marked by a lot of these types of connections or coincidences or seemingly almost miraculous interventions? I have to say, that's true. I definitely believe things happen for a reason. And it's happened enough times where it's uncanny, like you mentioned. And so I think the coming together of this, this picture, and it, it spanned numerous years to get it finished, 
But things fell into place when they were supposed to. I met people that I was supposed to, and it just worked out. So, yes, I think from a personal standpoint, I can definitely relate. Do you feel like this film, in the years since you initially conceived and started to create this idea and the story, has changed in what it means to you? Oh, I, I believe so, yes, this COVID thing. I've had personal, lost personal friends to it, and it makes you stop and pause how, how vulnerable, how fragile we really are. So this story that we crafted relates to that. It's, it's, it's a matter of do I go left or do I go right, and which path do I choose, and what is the consequence when I make that choice? And the same goes for what's happening now with the COVID thing, where we, do we go out? Do we not socialize? I think it is relevant to what's going on today. Did you start on this film in 2011 or 2013? Well, I started writing it in 2011, and then we started filming in 2013. Wow. So, so in the interim, I mean, I was writing, and then we were, we were doing the casting, and we were doing all the stuff that I had no idea what to do because I hadn't done it before. So, yes, there was a, there was a, a two-year thing before we actually started filming. Hmm. And then, so, and and then after that, it took us a year or so to finish filming, and then of course here we are today with it finished. Yeah, all inclusive. You're looking at a, a decade's worth of work. Watching this film now and and sharing it with audiences, do you feel like there are choices you might have made differently if you know what you know now, as an artist or just as someone who's ten years further into their lives? Oh, of course. How can you not? Like I mentioned, we, you know, we, I, I started not knowing anything, really. I know how to write. I thought I knew how to write. And I wanted to see what we could do. And so if I had a do-over, there's so many things I could, I could do better. Uh, not in terms of the production, because we ran a, a, a really tight, it was Ohana that we, we formed when we were filming. But in terms of my, my vision and my knowledge, about the craft. My eyes got, you know, were wide open. And so for, with a do-over for the next project, it will be a completely different and, and much better. But I'm thankful for the, the cast and crew that believed in me as we worked through this. So my hats off to them as well. Hmm. So let's return to the title, Angel by Thursday. Okay. That was your starting point for this whole 10-year process. Where did right. that inspiration come from? Can you share that with us? Sure. Being that I like to write and my wife being my sounding board, we've, we sit around all the time when we do what-ifs. My wife, Claudia. We were just kicking ideas around and Angel by Thursday, I said Angel by Thursday. I don't know. It's one of those divine things. Maybe that answers that part of the question where it just came to me and Immediately, it felt right, and I put it aside. Uh, I filed it away, actually, with no story in mind, but it came to me, and it just kept nagging at me. There's something. There's a story or Angel by Thursday, and when I, I said that, that to friends, what do you think of this title? And everyone had the same reaction. Man, that is a, that is a good title. It's deep. It's, you can make what you want of it, and so that, to me was the starting point. That's how, it, that's how it all started. 
Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about the film itself or the the process of, of spending 10 years with something and then finally seeing it come to fruition? I think um, for me, right off the bat, once I finished the script, when I asked Claudia, I said, hey, how would you feel? Let's, let's, what do you, how do you feel about, let's try and make this thing. How hard can it be? Well, man, yeah, it's, it's super difficult. It's super challenging. And, but she, she said, let's go for it. Why not? And so we started to you know, put it together and figure things out. How do we do this? How do we do that? And we had some friends that were in the business or had some knowledge. And so it tapped into their, their expertise and, and it got us going on a, on a path. And then um, maybe, again, divine intervention where it started snowballing, where one person led to the next, to the next, to the next, and all the pieces started lining up. And again, with me, really, with no experience except for a couple of short films. So it just built on itself and the pieces kept falling into place um, with cast, with crew, with location, all the way down the line, it, it, it worked out. So that was, that was a, a great part of the journey. And it, and it made for a fun journey because it did. It just came natural and, and everybody just seemed to click. And here we are. That was filmmaker Jeff Wallace speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about his new feature film, Angel by Thursday. The film was shot in Hawaii. HBR's Russell Subiano is a member of the cast. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Moyer Financial, the William S. Richardson School of Law at UH Manoa, and Hawaiian Airlines. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall Open Daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. 
Many of our veterans paid a high price for their service, and their children and grandchildren have had to step up to provide care. Sky Blossoms is a film that throws the light on caretakers for the greatest generation. It focuses on five families across the country and their experience caring for members with difficult medical conditions. Among the families profiled are the Kapanui's from Waimea, Kauai. Elihia Johnson is an Elizabeth Dole Family Foundation Caregiver Fellow. He discussed the film with us. Sky Blossom is a reference to those members of the military in the heat of battle looking up to the sky and seeing the paratroopers dropping down to provide that support, to provide that backup. And so in the film, which talks about veteran caregivers, they're compared to those Sky Blossoms that help coming in to support our veterans. Across the nation, there are five and a half million military and veteran caregivers and their their spouses, their parents, certainly children, family members, loved ones um, who care for our veterans, whether they're they're wounded or ill or whether the injuries were inflicted during service or after service or those kinds of chronic conditions from things they were exposed to in service. In Hawaii, it's over a hundred and... 12,000 veterans right here. And you have your own personal experience taking care of a loved one. I do. So my dad, Anthony, his classmates at Campbell High School 65 called him Ants. Thousands of customers of Hilo Ace Hardware over the years called him Tony. He was a Vietnam vet. He was in Vietnam in the Army from 66 to 68. And he, he hit it pretty well for most of my life. A lot of it kind of unpacked itself after the death of my mom and brother and grandma and kind of, you know, a short sequence of time and it unearthed a lot of trauma that he had been kind of holding in. So it it was definitely an experience to go through that with him, reconnecting with some of that, dealing with a lot of that and accessing some of the resources that we did to, to work through it. So I was 19 When my mother passed, she was his primary caretaker, so I got that responsibility as well as the stuff that came up because now those experiences had uh, been unpacked. And so I'm sure a lot of your friends weren't doing what you were doing, taking care of your dad, and and you had to grow up fast. I did, and, you know, Catherine, you and I talked, and this is something you've experienced, and thousands of people across Hawaii have experienced this as well. Uh, Whether at an early age, like me, a little bit later, a lot later, it really varies. But certainly my 20s were an adventure trying to balance, you know, school and the social life, but certainly that responsibility to care for my dad as well as my brother who had an intellectual disability. Um, So it's... Something that's not foreign to many kama'aina. We don't just leave our kupuna. We don't just leave people who need help to their own devices. We go, we help, we support. Yes, in in, in my case, my father was a vet and he was uh, uh, being treated at Tripler. uh, And you just uh, dug in deep, you know. It had to be done. You stepped up and you just did it. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I referenced... Hawaii is kind of an example where there's no question that we're going to take care of those who need it. But going back to the film, 
Sky Blossom looks at five families across the nation, including one family from Kauai. And they've all put caring for their veteran ahead of their own needs and made that the centerpiece of their families. And, you know, uh, when I was caring for my dad, you know, I had to learn about the VA health care system. That was a maze. But, you know, a lot of vets, you know, and maybe families don't know to tap the VA. It's a lot to navigate, certainly. And the, the services they provide abroad, you know, every veteran has their own challenges. Just think about the veterans living today served in conflict stretching back to World War II all the way to, you know, Afghanistan, and you think about the kinds of challenges that they were presented with during their service. For my dad and his generation, it was Agent Orange in Vietnam and the health impacts of that. For more recent veterans, you know, improvised explosive devices, burn pits, things like this cause such a myriad of issues. There's so much to navigate. And so um, research by AARP shows that only 21% of veterans in Hawaii use the VA for their health care. It's a resource that's available to them, but certainly it's a lot to navigate. For the past few months, I've been serving as Hawaii's representative in the Elizabeth Dole Foundation's Caregiver Fellow Program. I'm not the first from Hawaii, and certainly alumni of the Fellow Program still remain active in our community now, but I'm part of the class of 2021. And I think my two big takeaways, one is that you're not alone in this. There are so many caregivers out there, folks you would never know. Um, Catherine, you're a great example. Ron Mizutani, another example. Folks we interact with personally or professionally, and we have no idea that they've taken on this burden of caring for a loved one who's a veteran or otherwise needs caregiving. Um, So that was one big takeaway. Another one is, you know, there's such a range. You watch a film like Sky Blossom and you see, you know, veterans fighting super aggressive cancers. You see veterans without the use of multiple limbs for various reasons. And it's easy to think, you know what? My journey has not been that bad. My journey has not been that challenging. But the challenges of others shouldn't take away from the fact that every caregiver has made that commitment to care for their person, for better, for worse, through those tough times. Sometimes it's a spouse, sometimes it's children, sometimes it's other relatives. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation is also working on an exciting project to better support what they're calling hidden helpers for the children of the caregivers. So in my case, that would be my three-year-old daughter who right now is sitting in her bedroom with my dad and they're having a grand old time playing Barbies. (laughs) So it's, I think those have been the lessons, you know, don't compare your journey to anyone else's. They're all an incredible sacrifice and a commitment that we've made. Um, And maybe finally, You know, there are resources out there. There's help out there. The veterans who we care for made a commitment to serve the people of this nation. And caregivers are a big part 
of delivering on the promise that the nation made to them to care for them. And the support's out there. You know, I have a, I have a couple of um, websites I'd just like to leave you with. We talked about PBS Hawaii and their programming. AARP, who's presenting the, the screening as well as the webinar this week, aarp.org slash caregivers. has a lot of resources for family caregivers, veteran or not. And aarp.org slash veterans has some resources more specific to caring for veterans. And then finally, hiddenheroes.org is the website of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation's Hidden Heroes campaign, which looks to support those veteran caregivers. The hidden heroes who support our much more visible heroes are veterans. Senator Elizabeth Dole established the foundation in 2012 after an experience she had caring for her husband, Senator right. Bob Dole. Senator Bob Dole, he was yeah, he but, was in Walter Reed for 11 months. It's, it's a big initiative in recognition that I put things on hold so that I could care for my dad. What right. does that mean for my child? And what are the ways that my child participates in that caregiving journey too? Yeah. Um, my three-year-old is super involved and oftentimes, you know, she's very, she's a very critical part of helping my dad get through the day. And playing Barbies with Grandpa is part of that. Hidden Heroes was launched late last year by Senator Elizabeth Dole as a way to provide the selfless men and women serving in the shadows with the help and the recognition they deserve. If you're interested in watching the Sky Blossoms film, it is available to watch for free on Peacock. Johnson says it's well worth watching. means sometimes nothing good. People need to discuss these things. They shouldn't be slapped down and people afraid to debate them and air them and write stories about them because of our libel laws. I'm Kai Rizdal, Money, Power and the Truth. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at six, following All Things Considered. And finishing our show off with a bang, or maybe a kerpow, we've got a superhero epic for you. Marvel Studios' first film centered around an Asian superhero is titled Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It stars Simu Liu, a rising actor best known for the Canadian television series 
Kim's Convenience. It also features martial arts movie legends Tony Leung and Michelle Yeoh. It's directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who was born and raised on Maui. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with him about making the film. All I ever wanted was a normal life. My son, the Ten Rings, gave our family legendary power. Show me you are strong enough to carry that. You made a few small features at the start of your career. I am not a hipster, Short Term 12, The Glass Castle, Just Mercy. What do you think Marvel saw in those films that gave them the confidence to hand you the reins of this one? I mean, at its core, this movie really is a small family drama that's wrapped in the genre of a martial arts movie and a big action superhero movie. And I I do think one of the strengths that Marvel has in in all of their movies is a concentration on character and relationships. And and I, I think that's what they connected to in the movies that I've done up until this point. And it was it really was something that they constantly reminded me of to remember to infuse into this movie as well. Yeah, I definitely saw a very strong family dynamic within the film. And, and uh, you know, us coming from Hawaii, that's, you know, family is strong. And so I really appreciated that about the film. I grew up in Waimea on the Big Island. I know you grew up in Haiku on Maui. The populations of our towns are approximately the same. And we're approximately the same age. I still feel like I'm a few years away from having the skill set to produce a show at NPR. What was it like for you to go from small town to small films to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Were you 100% ready or was it still kind of a leap of faith? I mean, I feel like every every movie is a complete leap of faith for me. I walk into pre-production on, on every movie and feel completely out of my element, feel like, how in the world did I get here? There's no way I'm going to pull this off. All of the self-doubt comes in. And I don't know, the, the more that I, that, I, that I explore this industry and meet more people that I respect and admire and have admired their work, I have found that the, the people who, who I really respect the work that they do feel that same way. They, they often feel that that self-doubt and that pressure and to me those are people who are just honest because we're particularly in in if whatever field you're in if you are pushing your own limits you're always doing something you haven't done before so it's always going to feel really scary and this was definitely very scary when i started but I, I was working alongside a pretty incredible team of people who I really grew to love. And and on screen, this is a family drama. Behind the, the camera, we really did become a family as over the course of the two years making this. When they announced us, the movie, I was really, really excited. Kind of tongue-in-cheek, I ended up tweeting Marvel, hey, are we going to talk or what? So I'm very glad I did that. He's so intense as this character. Shang-Chi was made for Simu, and I could feel his passion for it. 
he's brought back into his father's world and has to deal with coming face to face with him again. And this is a much meaner and more hardened father. And then crazy stuff happens after that. <laughs> you know, when Marvel announced back in 2018 that it, they intended to bring Shang-Chi into the MCU, how much did Simu Liu's tweet actually factor into his casting as Shang-Chi? <laughs> I mean, in reality, not at all. I mean, I'm not sure what was happening in maybe uh, the the ether <laughs> <Yeah>. or <laughs> if there was some pos positive vibes going out into the air. And But we didn't know about the tweet until afterwards. So the, the hard fact is that Simu was wonderfully, you know, she discovered by our, first of all, our, our casting director, um, Sarah Finn, who was doing a, a search of, of every every actor in the business who, who could possibly play this role. And then Simu came in and proved himself repeatedly over the course of three pretty intense auditions. And, and he really just proved himself to be the, the right one for this character. My family and I are huge fans of Kim's Convenience, so when he was cast, we were thrilled. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've talked to several actors and filmmakers this year, either from Hawaii or with strong ties to Hawaii, and the consensus I'm hearing is that opportunities are on the rise for Indigenous and minority filmmakers to tell stories that would have been near impossible to make maybe 20 or 30 years ago. In your experience, do you feel the film industry is becoming more inclusive? And if more doors were open for you, what would be your dream project? I, I do think that in, in general, there I am seeing more and more people either rising into positions of power who are now decision makers, who are either minorities themselves or people who are true champions of diversity. It is still a slow moving train, I would say. And there's, I, we are all still battling the pressure of an old regime, not allowing new diverse voices into the mix. But I, I have found it to be a, a pot going in a positive direction that, that is exciting. It is really exciting to have been able to helm a movie like this, which would not have been even thought of as as a possibility five, 10 years ago. So I'm, I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about uh, the industry hopefully continuing to understand that if we don't start to tell stories that are a reflection of, of the people who are watching television and movies and a reflection of the true diversity of the world around us, then that we're, we're not going to stay relevant as an industry. I, as for my dream project, I don't, every movie that I make at, yeah. at that point in time is my dream project. I make movies not, not really thinking beyond the movie I'm making. And this movie right now was my dream project. I hope the next one will also be my dream project. <laughs> Have you seen any films or series that you would recommend to our audience or think more people should be watching? Yeah, a number of, I mean, I, I, 
Minari is one is a, a movie that was not um, uh, nominated for Best Picture at, at the Oscars. It was edited by we share an editor, so Harry Yoon, who edited Minari, was a, was also on Shang Chi. That's that's one recommendation that I I think people should watch. I haven't had a ton of time to watch a lot of things, to right. be honest. Um, but I you know I was also able to watch Ju- Judas and the Black Messiah with Lakeith Stanfield, who I love, and I thought that movie was was pretty incredible. Yeah, he was excellent in Short Term 12, which was my favorite film of 2013. As I mentioned before, me and my family are huge Kim's Convenience fans. So I, what, what I want to know is, is there a secret kimchi cameo somewhere in the movie? <laughs> um, not that I'm aware of, but maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thought I would ask. <laughs> I enjoyed the film immensely. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you so much. I, I'm part Chinese, part Hawaiian, so I'm looking forward to the Hawaiian superhero that comes yeah. into the MCU somewhere down the line. <laughs> that's a that's a good mix right there, Hawaiian Chinese. That's a good yeah. mix. That was Destin Daniel Cretton, director of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, talking with our Russell Subiano. The Marvel film was the highest grossing movie of 2021, making in excess of $400 million worldwide. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Do you want to share your thoughts about something you heard on the show? Color Talk Backline and leave your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our past shows on the conversation page on the HPR website, hawaiipublicradio.org. The conversation is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song. The Backyard Quiz, written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.